Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, the best place for learning about the world of alternative passive investments so that you can have a life with more freedom, flexibility, and fun. Now, if you're ready to kick the billable hour to the curb, start by going to attorneybydesign.com to download the Freedom Blueprint, which will also get you access to opportunities to partner with us on one of our next passive real estate investments. We'd love to get you on board and help you on your way to financial freedom. All right, let's talk about taking the leap, taking action. A quote from our guest today struck me really good. That is, don't let the fear of failure overcome the excitement of potential success. When you let that fear overtake you and drive your decision-making, you'll get stuck. Stuck with inaction, afraid of change, doubting yourself, and ultimately left with a feeling of unfulfillment and missed opportunities. You know, it's, it's kind of funny because once you take your head out of the ground that Wall Street has buried you in, and you punch through those limiting beliefs that, for instance, your 401k is the best and it's the only way to save for retirement, or that nine to five till 65 is the only way, or that having a great job as a lawyer, dentist, doctor, etc., is the most secure place you can be. Well, once you pull your head out of that hole, you'll find opportunities all around you. Once you make that first investment in an alternative asset or start a side hustle and start surrounding yourself with folks with abundant mindsets, New opportunities, ideas, and relationships will spring up all around you. Trust me. But you need to take action. Daniel Coca, our guest today, is a prime example of someone who takes action and surrounds himself with people that have expansive mindsets. Daniel is a fully recovered New York City big law corporate attorney turned full-time real estate investor and entrepreneur. He's a co-founder and general counsel for Alpha Investments. Without further ado, let's dive in. This is the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, where you'll discover the secrets and strategies of the ultra-wealthy on how they build streams of passive income to give them the freedom we all want. Attorney Seth Bradley will help you end the cycle of trading your time for money so you can make money while you sleep. Start living the good life on your own terms. Now, here's your host, Seth Bradley. Daniel, what's going on, brother? Welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely, man. Love, uh, love reading about your journey. Heard a lot about you from uh, Adapia. Um, so I'm excited about this. So let's just jump right in, man. Tell us a little bit about your background and your story. Yeah, sure. I had the, uh, I guess, the, the good luck, uh, as you, you might say, to graduate from law school in, in 2010, right? <laughs> Uh, and, and wanted to be a, a capital markets lawyer. And so uh, times were a bit crazy. Actually, the story I love to tell, when I was interviewing, my very first interview uh, for my summer job, which usually turns into your full-time job, was the day that, that Lehman collapsed, right? And so I was in there like 9 a.m., you know, talking to a partner and just like, I got to go. And they like put me in a room for like four hours. And I was just kind of there like waiting. And like, you know, it, it was one of those moments that in, in retrospect, was like somewhat surreal, right? Because I remember very vividly this partner is like, 
I just had to move, I just had to open up like 10 bank accounts so I could move money and make sure it was FDIC insured, right? The $250,000 limit. So they're just like running around like, and, and it, was a, it was a crazy moment in time. Nevertheless, uh, you know, I ended up working uh, as a lawyer, as a, as a capital markets lawyer. And, you know, as most people know in 2010, especially the fall of 2010, you know, the equity markets were, were not booming. Uh, the bank credit markets were effectively shut. But, you know, the U.S. is, uh, U.S. runs on credit, right? And, you know, there needed to be a way for companies, especially these growth companies, to, you know, capitalize their, their operations. And that's where I fell into doing a lot of high yield debt transactions. And, you know, at that point in time is like eight to 12% interest rate, you know, loans, but like these companies were, were doing it. And, you know, it was, it was seemed at the time to be a little bit like the wild, wild west, like anyone who had a you know, a company with a certain EBITDA level was out there, you know, raised in high yield, but that was really the only option at the time. And so, you know, I flowed into that, uh, really kind of got my, my feet wet in, in that world. Uh, very busy, for sure. Uh, you know, being a junior associate at a law firm is, is not something I would wish on, uh, on most people, but it, it was a, an excellent experience. Um, you know, the first day that I actually started at the firm, I got pulled out of orientation maybe two hours in and sent to the financial printer. And that's something that not everyone knows what it is. But when you uh, are putting together these offering memos or, or prospectuses before they get distributed to you know, the banks, you go to this place. It was like in downtown New York City, you know, on, on effectively on, on Wall Street. And it's like a beautiful building. And you go in there and you basically don't leave until you're done. There's beds, there's showers you can ask them to bring in food from the nicest restaurants in New York City and you just grind away. And I spent the first like 12 days of being a lawyer, basically living at this financial printer thinking, you know, what in the world did I get myself into? Uh, and, and that's part of how, you know, I kind of started my journey into figuring out like, how do I create autonomy, you know, professional autonomy for myself? And, uh, you know, there are some steps along the way, which I'm happy to, to chat about, uh, but that's more or less my, my starting gate, so to speak. That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, you're, you're obviously fortunate to have gotten that job in, in 2010 with everything going on. I, I came out in 2013 and it was still kind of rough trying to get a big law firm job. So 2010, even worse when the, you know, everything was collapsing or had just collapsed. So that's pretty awesome. But, you know, I think you kind of came to the realization, like a lot of, a lot of our listeners have that when you hit the big law firm as a young associate, it's not exactly what you thought it might be. <laughs> uh, that's, that's very true. I, there was probably about six months where I thought I was like the coolest guy in New York City. You know, I had <laughs> an assistant. I worked on like the 26th floor of a building with an awesome view of Manhattan. Like thought I was, you know, the, the man, right? And then quickly realized like, I'm very, very low down on this pyramid. Uh, and, and that the novelty of, you know, being a new world that was interesting and exciting to me, you know, quickly wears off after, you know, multiple 80 to hundred hour weeks. Yeah. I had the same experience. I actually remember posting on Instagram when I got one of those jobs of my feet with like the nice brown leather shoes on my desk with like the city skyline in the background. And that was like, oh, I made it type of moment. And then you turn around and you're billing like 3000 hours and you're like, oh man, this is, this is yeah, terrible. This is not, yeah. The, the, the marketing pitch that these law firms give you, like they sold me, you know, I'm the, I was yeah. the target I bought in 
And then, you know, listen, there are some people who like, they, they like that grind. They want to live in that world. That, that wasn't me. I appreciate the opportunity and everything I learned. It was a great experience at the end of the day. Uh, but, you know, it, it's a lot. And at some point you have to make a decision between, you know, what, you know, your, you know, earning potential is uh, when you're under the kind of the umbrella of a larger company that you don't control. And then, you know, what it may look like outside of that understanding of course there's you know there's a lot more risk when you're trying to create something you know from scratch yeah yeah so tell us about you know did you have an aha moment or was that aha moment when you were grinding away at the at the financial printer getting getting spoon fed or when did you have that, <laughs> that kind of epiphany where you're like man I've, I've had it i've got to figure out a different way to to make this thing happen yeah you know i think the one interesting thing about being at a big law firm is that you can actually see into your future, right? Because it, it's lockstep. Every year you get promoted to the next year. And like, I knew exactly what my life was going to look like two, three, four, five, you know, six years down, down the road, right? And, you know, while it works for a lot of people, I didn't think it worked for me. Simultaneously, I ran in a pretty entrepreneurial circle in New York City. And, you know, in the early kind of 2010s, as Mayor Bloomberg, you know, was, was the mayor of the city, there was just a huge startup tech venture, you know, renaissance of sorts as New York pushed itself ahead of Boston as the number two city. And I was just working on a ton of really interesting things kind of on the side with people, meaning like they would be pro bono clients or someone would say, hey, I'm, I'm working with these guys. Can you give them some advice? What have you? And that kind of snowballed a bit. And, you know, I got to a point where I was just surrounded by all of these folks who were doing their own thing, you know, being successful, however you wanted to find that that term and thinking to myself, the only difference between me and them is like they've put themselves out there and I have it, right? I'm going to work just as hard as they can. I'm going to, you know, I'm just as smart as they are. Uh, I can figure things out just as well as anyone can. And so, you know, fortunately, that was kind of my moment. It was an aggregate of, of things where I said, you know, if I'm going to do it, you know, now's, now's the time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing is being around entrepreneurial people and, and who you surround yourself with makes all the difference. I, I grew up in a, with a blue collar background. My dad's a retired coal miner. My mom's a retired school teacher. So I was never exposed to entrepreneurship. It was all about just try to get the best job that you can get. Um, and, and until you're around those types of entrepreneurial people, you don't, you don't even know that exists. Like you, you don't even realize that that's part of, um, you know, that that's something that you can do. Um, and I had a similar experience because I, you know, closing real estate deals, hundred million dollar plus deals, these massive financings. And it's like, then you start meeting the clients and you're like, Oh, wait a minute. These, these folks are pretty normal guys. I mean, I can do this too. And that's, I think I had a similar experience to you. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that was me too. You know, I grew up in a very middle-class family, um, you know, parents both worked and there was no, for me, there was no like vision of go out and like create your path in the world. Like both of my parents were like, you net, like I, I never brought home a B on in any class until I was like into law school, right? Like there was a, you know, you are going to work hard. You're going to get the best education you can. Um, and you're going to go out and you're going to become a lawyer. And my younger brother, like he's going to become a doctor. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, it was great getting out of that middle class requires some of that, right? You know, in theory, I think, you know, people would love to believe that, hey, like anyone can be anything they want to be and like you can go out and find your path. But the reality is what I needed to do was, you know, get educated, open doors, meet the right people 
also worked very hard and then get to a point where, you know, I had to make a, a decision about what was my path, right? And at some point in time, you know, and you obviously know this as well, but everyone's got to make that, that decision. Yeah. Yeah. So what did that transition look like? How did, what were the next steps going from, you know, being surrounded by some entrepreneurial folks, seeing that there is a pathway out and actually transitioning out of your practice and into, you know, your current business? Yeah. So originally when I was starting kind of to think about what my next step would be, I went to, there's a place in New York called General Assembly, which is kind of like an entrepreneur hub. And they would do these like talks and panels. And I went to one about lawyers who either worked at startups or, or at venture capital firms and uh, went to this panel thinking like, oh, this is how you make the transition. And what I learned very quickly is that the transition was very, very slow, meaning they were lawyers at a law firm, then they won in-house at a client. You know, Years later, an opportunity presented themselves to maybe do something on the business line, uh, on the business side. And then five to 10 years later, after they'd proven themselves, like now they were out kind of doing their own thing. And for me, that, that path was just a little too slow. And like, I'm not the most patient person to begin with, but, you know, looking 10 to 15 years down the road to actually do what I wanted to do, it just, it seemed like too long. Right. And so I'd actually met, uh, these, these guys, my co-founders at Alpha Investing, they were clients of mine at the law firm. I had met them through a colleague. I brought them into the firm and I think we just kind of hit it off. Like we, we understood what each party was looking for and how to build, uh, you know, what we wanted to build. Now, that being said, making the jump, I was way more confident than I should have been, right? Uh, naive is a great word to describe, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of my, my position at that time. And like, you know, explaining to my parents why I was taking a 90% pay cut to start this company. It was like, did not go over well, you know, uh, at, at all. Like you're throwing everything away. I can't believe you're doing this. You're three or four years away from making partner at a law firm. Like, what, what are you thinking, Daniel? And, you know, it, it was really only in the last like few years where I think they've kind of bought in that, okay, this decision made sense. And, you know, I'd like to say, oh, they, I, I knew what I was doing, but the reality is like, I really did it right. I, I made this jump and I bet on myself. I know it's a little bit of a, a cliche and assumed we'd figure it out. And there were definitely points along the way where like, well, maybe we won't figure it out. Like this is harder than, than I thought. I don't understand as much as I thought I did, but you know, over time, you know, especially when your, your back is against the wall, if you're willing to put in the hours, uh, you know, you can, you can figure things out. And so that's kind of how I moved uh, into alpha. And then, you know, I think when I was sitting at the law firm thinking like, how do I invest my money? Right. Cause you know, you're throwing money in the stock market, but you know, I'm, I'm not equipped, even as someone who's like somewhat on the inside as, as a lawyer who, you know, works, most of my clients were investment banks and kind of understands how the space works and how people think about companies and investing. I still felt like I was kind of the last to the know things, right. Just like the rest of the market does. And so I started really looking at alternatives uh, seriously and, you know, real estate, of course, is the one that pops to the top of that list uh, in, in most times. And uh, I think the thought like most people have is I'm going to go buy a house and I'm going to rent it or I'm going to fix it up and rent it or flip it or do something like that. But like, keep in mind, I'm still, a, you know, at this point, a mid-level associate at a big law firm. Like I barely had time to go to the gym and, and eat dinner, let alone figure out how to do all this stuff. And so I started looking for places to deploy my capital, but 
it was really challenging, especially before the Jobs Act. And, and a lot of these like firms that have popped up, they don't actually rely on the, the Jobs Act legislation for how they do their offerings, but it's what opened the door, right? It's what led people into the space. And all of a sudden, instead of having to do that country club, friends and family equity, or some small local partner that you knew through someone you worked with, you know, finally there were opportunities that, that opened up. And like any new space, you know, there's a, a period in time where, you know, those opportunities, they're not vetted, right? It's not a sure thing. There's, you know, it's ripe for fraud, what have you. It's an industry that, that needed to, to mature. And we're certainly still in that space. But what I realized is that I wanted to invest my money with, you know, institutional real estate owner operators. And I wasn't in a position to write seven figure checks as a 28 year old. And so I had to do it with other people and I needed to do it with other people who had expertise and and, an understanding of how these deals work. And so when I met my now partners at Alpha, uh, it's something that made all the sense in the world to me because it's exactly what I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So tell us about, you know, your current business right now. You know, how do you help investors? What types of assets do you invest in? What, what are you bullish on? Yeah, we're a real estate private equity firm, right? And we have a relatively small number of operating partners that we work with. Those are the folks that are going to go out, they're going to identify the acquisitions, right? And in this current market, you know, bidding on marketed deals just doesn't make sense, right? That the pricing is, I know everyone says this, but the pricing really is out of control. And so you need a group that has, you know, boots on the ground. They can find these off-market deals or they can preempt some of these marketing deals before they go live. So we've got a handful of those groups that we work with, um, you know, billion dollar plus portfolios, uh, very experienced folks. And then we have a, a capital network and, you know, we, cap the size of the network at a thousand people, which, you know, people often tell me is crazy that we're not, you know, admitting, you know, a ton of new members or anyone who wants to invest with us. But it's really important to us that we maintain relationships with the folks that are in our network, right? And we're not trying to build a a billion dollar, you know, real estate conglomerate where, you know, you've got tens, 20,000 investors or massive institutions. We have a group of people that look very similar to us, like busy, working professionals that want to deploy capital into alternatives, into real estate. And sometimes they care about generating some amount of passive income. Other times they just care about, you know, what's the IRR of this deal and I want to get returns and I'm rolling this money over and over and over again. And so, you know, we've kind of built this firm where we go out, we partner with groups, uh, our team uh, will underwrite the transactions collaboratively with our partners. Uh, our internal asset management team is going to kind of stay on top of things post-acquisition on the PM calls, um, you know, going through the process of reviewing monthly financials, of course, quarterly reporting. And at the end of the day, we're trying to find really eight to 10, maybe 12 deals a year that we think present really well on a risk-adjusted basis. In this current market, I don't think I could find 100 deals that I, I think make sense. I'm, I'm sure they're out there, right? And to some degree in this market, anything that you buy is is making sense whether or not it actually made sense on paper or not, right? Uh, And that's effectively what we do. We aggregate the folks in our network. We create a new investment vehicle for every single deal. And so instead of, you know, you as an individual, you know, writing a $25,000 check, which, you know, you wouldn't be able to do with, you know, these sponsors that are only working with other institutional capital partners, that money gets aggregated with everyone else. And, you know, we write, typically anywhere from five to 
15, $20 million equity checks in, into deals. And you know, it, it serves the purposes I, I was looking for as that mid-level associate with some money to invest, which is you know, top caliber partners, uh, you know, a team of folks who are vetting those partners, are underwriting deals, and then continuing to stay on track or on top of it as uh, you know, as the deal goes through through its life cycle. And then, hey, all I have to do is make an investment decision. I don't have to be involved in the transaction any other way. It's truly passive. And, and that's effectively what we set up was exactly what we were looking for, but didn't really seem to exist. Right, right. And I actually went down a pathway where I did the fix and flips working at a big law firm and doing them from 2000 miles away. They weren't even local. So trying to manage those low level uh, property managers and contractors doing these residential projects was just absolutely insane. And I, I had to go down that progression first before I started investing passively in the bigger commercial deals and then on to the active side. So you skipped a few steps there. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, you know, the reality is like, I just don't think I had the, the energy or the wherewithal to even start that process. Right. It's just, it's a lot. And anyone who's ever owned a rental property or tried to do a, a flip knows it's not, it's not like it is on, you know, these, these television shows, right. Where everyone's cool. And there's like one major thing that pops up and we <laughs> figure it out at the end of the day. Like that's not how it goes. Right. And so uh, I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like HGTV where there's just one problem that they have to pop in. They're like, Oh no, look at this terrible thing that happened, but we're going to overcome it. And we're still going to make a hundred thousand dollars on this flip. <laughs> exactly. Uh, how do you think that your, your legal background helped you succeed in your current business? Because a lot of folks are you know, thinking about maybe leaving their legal practice or starting a side hustle or something. And maybe they're thinking, I, I did all this work. Like I went to law school, I got a big law firm job, and now I'm thinking about transitioning out into something else. Was it a waste? So you know, how has your legal background kind of helped you along your way in this new pathway? Yeah. So I do a lot of interviewing of incoming law school applicants uh, at Vanderbilt, which is where I went to, to law school. And one of the things I, I always tell people is that what I actually learned in law school, like the substance, I don't know that I could point to one time where I actually applied it to my practice as a lawyer, right? You get in there, there's a way of doing things. It's a, you learn it as you go, but you know, what you you know, looked at or learned in your securities law class is only applicable to, you know, being a securities lawyer at the highest levels, right? And all the intricacies of what it means to be a lawyer at a big law firm, like there, it's all the nuance, right? And so, you know, it, it just doesn't matter. But what I did take away from law school, I think is how to think about problems as a lawyer, right? And how to per persuasively explain people why, whatever position I'm taking on a particular issue uh, makes sense and, you know, why other folks should, should support it. And, you know, reasonable parties will always disagree on, on things. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, especially in a new company startup environment, being able to figure things out, here's a problem, you know, you got to solve it. I actually think often of uh, Matt Damon in that movie, The Martian, where he says something to the effect of like, you know, I had a problem and I solved it. And if I solved enough problems in a row, like I got to go home. And that's kind of how we've always thought about alpha investing and, and growing the firm. Like we'll figure things out. And if we are around long enough that, you know, we figured out enough things, everything will fall into place. And, and that's effectively what happened. 
Yeah. What, were there any other things that helped you guys scale so quickly? Um, were there, you know, mentors or coaches or advisors or anything like that? Did they play a role? Tons, tons of people. Um, and a lot of them were tied to my, my partners and I went to Vanderbilt in different capacities. Like I, my partner now did his, his undergrad and, and master's there. Uh, and then he did his MBA at, at UCLA and a ton of whether they were academics, other you know students, colleagues that we worked with, uh, or just folks who were alumni saying, hey, like we want to help you. Because when, when we got started, keep in mind, right, we were going to very institutional real estate sponsor partners and saying, hey, in the aggregate, we might be able to write you a $300,000 check from the 12 or 15 people that are kind of part of this, this immediate network, right? And that's not interesting to you in the least bit, right? You know, your capital comes from institutions that write you one 20, 30, $40 million check at a, at a time. We get it. But can you give us some runway? Can you give us half a million dollars of, of an allocation in your next deal so that we can start to build up a track record and a process? And you know, the reality is most people who start real estate private equity firms or really any professional service firm, you know, they do it in like their mid to late 40s or 50s when they have enough capital to fund everything themselves. They've got a, you know, a career's worth of, of relationships to rely on. And it's really just a matter of doing what you were otherwise doing and, and putting it under, you know, a new umbrella that, that is your own, right? And for us, we were all under 30. And, you know, we were trying to figure out how to work in this space uh, and to evolve and, you know, understand that, you know, the worlds we worked in, there was some overlap in terms of, of skill set and whatnot, but we had to kind of learn an entire new industry. And so we relied very heavily on the, the mentors that were in our network, the folks who backed us, particularly those who you know, were career real estate professionals to say, you know, look at things this way, you want to build this way, be careful about this. And so, you know, if there's one thing, you know, outside of the, the team that I think drove uh, our ability to create something that, you know, will knock on wood be longstanding is the folks who supported us. And, and I think it's also important to know that these people, like they were supporting us because they wanted to be helpful. These are not people who needed the money for making investment in, into alpha or, you know, we're looking for some side gig where they could have control. These are people who said, hey, I like you guys. I know you're hardworking. You're smart. I want to help you. And so I'm going to basically give you, give you my time. And you know, that was probably the most valuable asset we had. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that goes to show you, I mean, it, it goes to how you present yourself and, you know, what people think about you, obviously, you know, they had a good impression from you and, and felt like they, they wanted to really genuinely help you out along the way. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's go let's talk a little bit about mindset, man. So, you know, you've, you've had a few instances in your career where, you know, there were kind of these different pathways you could have went. What do you think kind of separates your people like yourself, successful people that have made that transition, taken action, um, doing what they love to do compared to those folks that maybe are just stuck doing what they hate doing and they don't do anything about it and they just complain about it day after day? What do you think separates those two types of people? It's a really good question. And, you know, one of the big challenges that I see is that you really need a certain set of circumstances in order to, you know, make the jump to create some amount of professional autonomy, right? And maybe that's, you come from a lot of family money, right? And, you know, you have a safety net. And that unfortunately was, was not me. 
Uh, but at the time that I made the jump, the only responsibility I had was to myself, right? I didn't have a wife. I didn't have kids. I could afford to take a risk. And, you know, if things failed, I could have always kind of went back, you know, tail tucked to the law firm and said, can you guys hire me back? Like I, I made a mistake, what, what have you. And so, you know, there, there was, uh, the, the risk for me wasn't the same as someone who's, you know, has all of those things, has responsibilities, has a, as a mortgage, has family they need to look after, uh, et cetera, right? And so situation uh, is important. Uh, the challenge is, is also just fear, right? And, and I'll tell you, you know, my parents raised me in a way where I was much more fearful of failing than I was excited about being successful, right? And I think that's a mindset that people need to get themselves out of, right? Because when you fear failure, your ceiling's very, very low, right? Uh, and that's not to say that uh, you know the floor isn't high because it because it can be, right? Especially if you're working in you know a professional services world where you know you get really high salary. But I really had to shift my mindset, and it, and it took a while because you know you're a product of how you were raised, right? And it, it took me a very long time, probably four to five years of kind of being out on my own, you know, working a, as an attorney to say, hey, like the way that I viewed the world when I started this, like it's very different now. And if I want to change my circumstances, if I want to create an environment where, you know, I can have the professional autonomy that I want. I can, you know, make enough money to, you know, feel secure and, and do the things that I want to do. And I'm a, I'm a simple guy at the end of the day, regardless of, you know, if you met me in, in 2012, when I was in my bespoke suit, you know, with my secretary, like you probably would have thought <laughs> very, very different of, of me at that time. But at the end of the day, you know, the things that, that matter to me and, and that are important, you know, we're able to do. And so, you know, you just have to kind of work to a point where these things make sense for you. And, that equation is going to be different for every single person. Uh, I think in a world where someone's just complaining every day about I'm working for my boss, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, like try something on the side, you know, get involved with, uh, you know, someone who's trying to, to start something or just look for, you know, a job that's just more interesting to you. Um, the one thing I hate is when people say, uh, you know, if you do something you love, like you never work a day in your life, you know, that's very true, but it's also, kind of a ridiculous premise, right? Because not everyone has the ability or the opportunities or the luxury to work in that type of role. You know, I look at my parents, like they worked the blue, white collar jobs, uh, didn't love them, but they did it to provide for the family and, and give their children opportunity. And so I think people also need to acknowledge like, where are you in you know, your family's generational hierarchy, right? Are you the person who is going to benefit from what everyone did before? Or are you the person who's going to have to grind and create an opportunity for those that come after you? Yeah. Yeah. I love that, man. Do you hear some of these same kind of pain points and things when you talk to investors on your investor calls? Yeah, absolutely. You know, anyone who, you know, is, is high earning, investing their capital, they're looking for ways to reduce the amount of time that they work. The majority of the time, there are some people who say, I just love being a physician. I love being a lawyer. I love being an engineer. And like, I would do it for free, but I also make a lot of money. And so I'm, I'm going to make, you know, smart decisions. Right. But I think a lot of people are looking for ways to create financial freedom and, you know, investing in things that, you know, create, uh, that create uh, profit or revenue, what, however you want to define it, that can end up in, in your pocket. Like that gets you there. 
I think the one of the flaws in thinking is always the timing. It doesn't get you there that fast, right? You know, if you invest $100,000 a year into real estate deals and $100,000 a year is a meaningful amount of money, like you're not going to get to a point where you're replacing, you know, your high income salary within five years. It's just, just not how it works. You got to go through rotations and, you know, you put a hundred grand in and then maybe in five years you get, you know, 225,000 out. And then you reinvest that along with the other hundred grand you put in each year. And like, maybe you're at a point where you have a, a couple million dollars uh, invested in deals, but that's going to be 10 to 15 years out. Right. And even then, you know, $2 million uh, invested, if you can earn 10% a year on that, like that's not going to replace your $500,000 salary, right? And so uh, time, you know, you, you got to be willing to, to be patient and work through it and find opportunities. And uh, it's not quite as easy as I think sometimes people think it is to, you know, reach financial freedom. And everyone has to assess their own circumstances and say, where do I want to be? Where am I now? And, and what's, what's my path, right? It, you got a plan. Um, and yeah, that's a very long-winded answer to your question, but uh, that's what I would tell folks in those types of positions. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I think people, you know, they listen to podcasts, they read the books and they hear about financial freedom and they think, well, if I just invest $50,000 in one of these syndications, I'm going to be financially free before you know it. And I can quit my job and I'll be sitting on the beach sipping coconuts. It's not how it works. I mean, you've got to keep recycling this money. You've got to compound it. You know, a lot of times real estate syndication isn't always the right answer. You've, that's just part of the equation. That's part of the puzzle. That's one of the things you should be invested in is real estate. And then look at other things for you, other ways for you to generate uh, income, especially if you want to walk away from your job sooner rather than later. And typically it's going to be not necessarily all at once like you and I did it. It's going to end up being a little bit at a time, buying back your time piece by piece. Maybe you can scale down. I know that I've talked to some attorneys lately and a lot of the large law firms allow you to ratchet down your billable hour requirement now. I know back in the day, if I said, hey, I only wanna bill half the time, that, that was not an option, um, but it is nowadays. So you can start buying back your time piece by piece. Yeah, and listen, I'm a realist at the end of the day. Like I'm not a you know rose-colored glasses type of guy. And I think the reality is like not everyone will have the ability or the opportunity or the means or the circumstances to create this life where they've got a big pile of money and that money's making them enough money that they can just kind of sit back and relax, right? That that just may not be you or or me or or whoever, right? It could be because you started late in life. It, it could be for any number of reasons. And so uh, I think it's really important that people find, you know, happiness, contentment, which I, I assume is what they're looking for when, when they say I want to generate passive income uh, in one form or another. It doesn't have to be, you know, your work, it can be your family, it can be nonprofits, it can be other organizations, uh, you know, what, what have you. Some of the most fun times I've had was uh, in, in college uh, coaching a, a second grade basketball team you know, that was a blast. Like I loved it. It was a ton of fun. And in the grand scheme of things, like those little things that, uh, you know, that you fit into your life, I think those are the ways that you find happiness as you uh, are on your journey to the point where you're actually doing exactly what you want to do. Yeah. You got to find joy in the journey, man. Or it's not worth it. You're never going to reach that. It's not like you're going to reach that one elusive goal. And then all of a sudden you're going to be happy. You've got to be happy with, with the journey and on your way. That, that's so correct. And the one thing I've realized in the last few years is that 
the, the joy and excitement that I thought I was going to feel when we sold a property and we got this big check, like it lasted for like 10 minutes on the first one. And I was like, ah, like every, every dollar I make, you know, is just being rolled into other investments. Right. And it comes in and you have this like liquidity challenge, right. Where you really want liquidity when you don't have it. And then as soon as you get it, you're like, I need to get this, you know, <laughs> off my books as soon as possible. And then you live in this world where like, you're just taking the money and you're, you're putting it back in investments and you're making more money. Like you're not really using it. Right. You're, you're just kind of building, you know, this wealth for, your, for yourself, uh, you know, hopefully. Uh, but yeah, man, I, I get it. Uh, I, I fully get it. Living that journey uh, every day. Yeah. All right, man. Let's jump into the Freedom Four. It's time for the Freedom Four. What's the best thing you do to keep your mind and body healthy? So I am someone who is very focused on you know, my personal health, whether it's mental health, uh, emotional health, uh, physical health, right? And so I actually spend a lot of time uh, going through the exercise of, of trying to kind of optimize all of those things in, in whatever whatever way uh, I think I can get there. And, and I'm fortunate that I have a lot of friends who are very like-minded. And so they often do the hard work of doing all the research and listening to all the podcasts. And they say, hey, like, these are the things that I that I found out, right? But you know, as it relates to health, uh, I definitely watch what I eat despite having a, a pretty large sweet tooth and a wife who loves to bake. Um, but, you know, I try to make sure that, you know, I, I'm an intermittent faster, uh, which I absolutely love I break my fast with a super heavy, you know, protein shake. Uh, you know, I have my cold pressed green juice every day. Uh, I try to eat a really healthy diet. I supplement all the things that I don't otherwise, you know, get in my system. Uh, all that stuff is really important to me. Uh, I try to, do some type of activity every single day, whether it's going to the gym or, or yoga, or, you know, I actually just got back from a, from a run like 30 minutes ago. Uh, that's for me, those types of things are what keep me energized and, and motivated and excited about the day to day. And at the end of the day, you know, for me, it's all about how do I feel right? You know, money and wealth is one factor that goes into how I feel. But what I've realized is that it's a way smaller factor than I thought it was when I didn't have any of those things. Right. And it's really just like, am I happy with my personal and professional relationships? Do I feel like I'm building something? Do I feel like I'm creating? Do I feel like I'm engaging with the people in my life in a way that is meaningful and fulfilling? And, you know, these are all things that people hear. And, and I, I do kind of think they're a little bit of cliche in, in a lot of ways, but it's ultimately true uh, at the end of the day. Right. Like I think they say, you know, you only need to make sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year to to truly be happy, and anything you know beyond that, uh, you know, doesn't actually improve your your happiness. And that's always something that I think people like us kind of scoff at, right? Like, oh yeah, like you know, seventy thousand dollars a year, and I'm going to be as happy as I am now, right? Uh, but that's the you know that's the golden handcuffs. That's the mindset that it's really easy to go down that path. Yeah, love all that, man. With all your success, what is one limiting belief that you've crushed along the way and how did you get past it? Really good question. And I think I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it was getting out of the mindset that uh, fearing to fail was more of a driver than you know being excited about succeeding, right? And 
you know, I think for a lot of folks, particularly those who come from circumstances that, you know, it sounds like both you and you and I did where you don't have the safety net that is, is family wealth. And, you know, in my case, I was the first one in my family to, to go to college. Uh, for me, it was follow this path, take these steps and you'll be fine. Right. And then it takes you a period of time to realize like, well, being fine is nice, but it's not as good as being good or being great or being awesome or whatever you, you know, whatever adjective you want to use. And so for me, it was really getting to a point where I said, Hey, like, I believe that I can continue to work in a job I don't really love uh, and be fine, but I'm going to take the risk in this moment and try to create the life for myself that, that I want to live. Right. And again, I was very fortunate to be around people who were already doing it and saying, you got to do this, man. It's awesome. You're going to love it. And nobody ever tells you about the, hey, you're going to be sleeping on a couch, you know, in, in with three roommates, uh, you know, grinding away, you know, just trying to like figure out how to do what you're doing, you know, those moments, but those moments also in retrospect, like, I didn't really mind them, right? right. Like, it was fun. Like, it's, it's the stories we talk about now are not hey man, we got so much money from this last deal that we sold. Like nobody really cares. Like we care, but, but we don't actually care, right? It's, hey, remember when we were, you know, sleeping on a couch or an air mattress for a month and, you know, we could only cobble together $300,000 into these deals. Like, well, we just put $20 million into a deal, like feels great, right? And, and that journey, that story, that shared experience, that's what's ultimately most meaningful. Yeah, yeah. What's one actionable step our listeners can do right now to start creating more freedom for themselves? Plan. Uh, I think the idea that things are just going to fall into place and work out, like that's never been something that I've, I've followed. My wife is very much like, a, I've got my vision board. I'm going to manifest things like into the universe. And like, sometimes I think she's either like the luckiest person in the world, or, you know, maybe there's something, something to all this. You live in Los Angeles for long enough. You're going to go down that, down that, that path. Right. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I just try to try to think like, where am I now and where do I want to be? And if I'm being realistic with myself and my circumstances, how do I get to that point? Is it even reasonable to get to that point? Right. And that's that's the story for me. And, and I, I think it starts at different points in time for different people. And if you look at, you know, my parents, like for my dad, the plan was never create, you know, wealth and success for himself, right? Like that was never the goal. It was create an opportunity for my children to create wealth and success for, for themselves, right? And uh, that's a perfectly reasonable and and you know, unselfish thing for, for someone in his position to do. But I think it requires some self-reflection as you think about, well, what is my path? What am I actually trying to do? Right. And you sit back and you plan and you execute on that plan. And when things go off the rails, which they inevitably will, uh, you figure out how to get back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Last but not least, how has passive income made your life better? It's a, it's a hard question to answer because like it, I don't even know that, that it has. I think, you know, having some degree of financial security has certainly relieved a certain amount of stress and, and anxiety and worry, especially, you know, my, my wife is pregnant and we're going to have our first in like two, two and a half months. Right. And so, you know, there's this sense of like, okay, I need to make sure that, you know, my family is, is provided for, you know, right. But 
you know, at, at the end of the day, like I said, once I get liquidity, it's just how quickly can I re redeploy it, right? Like we have the things that we want in life. We, we have family that, uh, you know, that we love and, and we want to continue to just have in our lives for, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, but it is nice. It does give me the freedom to uh, maybe take some risks I wouldn't otherwise take. And cryptocurrency is a great example. You know, that's, that's a space that has always been really interesting to me that, you know, until I had enough money where I said, if I lose all this, like, I'm going to be mad, but it's not the end of the world. You know, it frees you up to take those types of risks. And, you know, when you can take those types of risks, uh, you know, that's where you can oftentimes find outsized return. Now, taking outsized risk, you know, and getting an outsized return doesn't make sense in, in perpetuity, right? Uh, but, you know, it does create some options and, you know, other opportunities that allow you to reach whatever your goal may be. Yeah. Daniel, this has been awesome, brother. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and your story. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about you? Yeah, you can check us out. Uh, alpha I, like alpha, the letter I.com is, is our website. Um, we're not really like a website heavy, uh, a website heavy group, but you can read a lot about what we do and, and our strategy. You can of course, find me on LinkedIn. I'm not a big social media guy. You won't find me there. If you want to follow my life, you got to follow my wife. That's where, uh, where <laughs> all my friends call and say, oh, hey, how are you enjoying like your vacation? I'm like, how did you know that, you know, I, I was in this place? And it's like, oh, we follow your wife on Instagram. So, uh, you know, that, 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 that's, that's my story in my journey. Uh, but yeah, check us out. Check out the, the team at, at Alpha. I always like to meet, you know, new people who are doing interesting things. Awesome, brother. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Likewise, Seth. It was great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, Daniel Coca, living the dream life, right? Able to walk away from his big law legal practice to focus full-time on his real estate business. Super knowledgeable and inspirational, especially for those attorneys out there that are still grinding, billing those hours, hanging out by the financial printer, <laughs> whatever that is. I never had that in my firm. But anyways, major key, get educated like you're doing right now. Make a plan of action to reach your goals, whether that's quitting your job or reaching this certain amount of passive income in the next year, whatever it might be. But the key is taking action. Most people forget about that last part. Not you, though. Don't get stuck. All right. If you're ready for a change and ready to take action, partner with us on our next passive real estate deal. Go to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com and join our Esquire Passive Investor Club. All right, kids, enjoy the journey. Thank you for listening to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast with Seth Bradley. Do you want more ideas on how to generate multiple streams of passive income? Then jump over to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com for show notes and resources. Then apply for the private Facebook community by searching for the Passive Income Attorney on Facebook. And we'll see you on the next episode.